0: I don't know if there are any history buffs here, um, people that like history and and, um, and read history, but some of you, I imagine, will be aware of King Richard III. Anyone heard of King Richard III? He was was the king who rather uh, famously, uh, on the eve of of a quite critical battle, um, sent his horse, his war horse, off to get um, some last-minute shoe repairs. Um, And if you know the story, the blacksmith didn't actually have enough nails for all four hooves, all four shoes. And um, the king needed the horse, though. So the horse was raced back to the headlines after what work could be done on the horse. And then during the battle, the, horse was, um, the, the, the king was riding his horse up and down his lines, urging his troops forwards. And the horse stumbled and fell, had lost a, a shoe, and the king disappeared from view. And all the common soldiers, not seeing their king, um, fell back in disarray. And, uh, and slowly the tide turned and the battle was lost and years later, um, Benjamin Franklin, was, uh, the, the, the American thinker and writer, was refle- reflecting on the, uh, the event. And this is what he wrote. You've probably heard this before. For want of a nail, a shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, a horse was lost. For want of a horse, a battle was lost. For want of a battle, a kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a nail. Little things can make a big difference, can't they? And you see that all the time in, in our lives, in our world. Uh, one small purchase, one, one little expense claim that shouldn't have been filed, and a politician finds his career in, in tatters. One letter that was sent to parliamentary colleagues when perhaps it shouldn't have been sent in those circumstances, <laughs> and, and a politician finds himself in, in deep water. Um, One moment of stupidity on the part of a teenager, jumping into a car, the decision to get into a car with with a drunken mate, and he wakes up in a hospital bed without feeling in his legs for the rest of his life. Um, One little error by the referee. One goal that should have been scored. (laughs) One yellow card, more to the point, that shouldn't have been given. And the momentum of a game turns, and... Once again, uh, well, depending upon what side you are, you could say that a great footballing nation crashes out of the World Cup or the All Blacks win yet again another victory against the Australians. Little things, the loose nails, can have big consequences, can't they? And what I want to do this morning is to walk through a story with you where you see this in, 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 in such incredible uh, detail. Jephthah. An incredible story, strange little story, um, found on the book of Judges. And let's just walk through the story and see what we can learn from it. So Jephthah, um, from the book of Judges, turn to Judges chapter 11. I hope you brought a Bible. There'll be some of the uh, of the story, some of the narrative up on the screen here. But we'll, let's walk through this quite closely. And then at the end, we'll just stand back a bit and see what we can learn from this. So um, Jephthah, the story of Jephthah, Judges chapter 11. Now let me just, first of all, let me set the scene, because um, this is a dark time, if you know the book of Judges. This is, this is the dark ages for Israel. The people of God have been chosen by this, this faithful, covenanting God, Yahweh, to be his people, to be his special possession. Through them, he wants to reach the whole world with his grace. And that's his goal, that's what he's going to do. But in the meantime, they, uh, time and time again, they fall short of their calling, and they abandon their God. They're faithless and they end up chasing after other gods and worshipping the pagan idols of the, the surrounding nations. And they've done it once again. And God, as he had promised he would, he hands them over to their enemies to teach them a lesson, to, to discipline them and bring them back. And in desperation, they've been, they've been oppressed brutally by the Ammonites and the Philistines, chapter 10 says, for 18 long years. 18 years they have been under the, the kind of the iron fist Of their enemies. And they cry out in desperation. And it says there that um, having got rid of all of their idols, having turned back to God again, having realized their mistake, it says in chapter 10, verse 16, that God, these are great words, that God could bear Israel's misery no longer. He could bear their misery no longer. And he resolves to intervene on their behalf. And he raises up yet another judge, another ruler to rescue his people, as he's done time and time again through the book of Judges. And this is where we meet Jephthah. So uh, Judges chapter 11, verse 1. This is the kind of of person we're dealing with. Uh, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, or Tob where a group of adventurers, literally adventurers—literally empty men, a group of morally empty men, a group of, of thugs and cutthroats and criminals, gathered around him and followed him. So let's just pause there. This is Jephthah. This is the guy we're dealing with. Can you imagine a more dysfunctional background to that? He's the illegitimate child of a prostitute. He's, uh, he's been rejected by his brothers. He's been scorned and disinherited by his family. Pretty, pretty, pretty bleak in those days to have no inheritance at all. He's forced to flee from his homeland. He, that's what the text says. He's forced to flee. Ends up a refugee in exile in another country. Um, and there he finds himself a member of the criminal underworld. I mean, pretty tough start to life, really. And um, it says there though that he he actually finds um, you know he finds his feet in this place in the uh, the underworld of Tob because he's obviously got a good left hook he's you know, he's a he's a mighty warrior he's got the physical kind of prowess of a bread thorn or, a, or um, someone like that he um he's got charisma it would seem people gather around him he's you know he's a bit of a Reuben Munn and this kind of natural charismatic thing going on um, and, and he, he gets quite a following quite a following. And I can imagine he would have been quite content to have just stayed there playing the part of Robin Hood with his band of merry thieves for the rest of his life. Um, Certainly better than being scorned by your brothers back in your homeland. But that wasn't to be. Uh, William Shakespeare once said that um, great men, uh, some men are born great, some achieve greatness, but others have greatness thrust upon them. And that was Jephthah. He falls into the third category because sometime later, war breaks out and Israel's in real strife with uh, the enemies oppressing them. And it says in verse 4 that when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Now, of course, these are the very same men who, what? Who some years before or months before, however long it was, scorned their own brother, their own their own uh, fellow clansmen. These are, the, these are the very people who, who have destroyed Jethro's life, it would seem. And, so, and Jethro hasn't forgotten that. Look at, look at how he responds. He can't help but rub salt into their wounds a little bit. He says to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Good question. The elders of Gilead, they say to him, uh, Uh, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. You know, grovel, grovel. I mean, they've got no other hope. In the text, it says that they've tried several other options and they've all fallen through. So is their last hope. They're really desperate. They say, come, come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. So this is the prize. If you come and be our commander and you win the battle for us or lead us into a victory, then, then you will become our political head, our leader. You will be number one of our tribe. You who we scorned will be our champion. You'll be our king. You'll be our our ruler, our judge. And look at Jephthah's reply. It's really interesting. Verse 9, it says that Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. So he recognizes that if he has victory, it will be God, Yahweh, the, the, the God of Israel, who will give them victory. He says, if that happens, will I really be your head? I mean, I've seen how you've you've treated me in the past. And the elders of Gilead reply, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah, in his hometown, where he came from. So underneath the macho image, underneath the, the tattoos and the black leathers and whatever else, underneath the outlaw, there's actually quite a sensitive, thoughtful guy. A man who has a faith in God, obviously. A man who, who's quite reflective. And if he's going to become leader of his people, he wants it constitutionally ratified with God at the very center of the arrangement. And uh, the same kind of wisdom, faith, this, these kind of qualities are evident later on in the story because as soon as he's installed as their leader... Jephthah enters into this exchange with the Ammonites, and what he does is he he writes to the Ammonite king, and he says in verse 12, what do you have against us that you've attacked our country? So he's not a hothead who shoots first and then asks questions later, or headbutts first, or whatever it is. He he actually stops and thinks, if we can get out of this without bloodshed, that would be the best option. So he enters into this, this correspondence, this diplomacy, and the king of the Ammonites replies by saying, well... You've taken my land, I want it back, which is a bald-faced lie. He's just spoiling for a fight, the Ammonite king. And Jephthah knows the history. He knows that the land the Israelites occupy was not taken from the Ammonites. And he explains that. Um, and, and he's firm in his response, but he's, he's tactful. He's diplomatic. He's conciliatory. He gives the, the king of the Ammonites a way out, which is always a good thing to do. I think uh, George Bush could have taken a leaf from, from Jephthah's uh, book. But what what, what happens is that Jephthah is obviously confronted with a king who is implacably bent on invading Israel. He's he's got a war on his hands. There's no escaping it. So Jephthah's forced to mobilize his tribal forces. And that's what he does. It says in chapter 11, verse 29, that the Spirit of the Lord then came upon Jephthah. Interesting phrase. Prompted, guided, empowered by the Spirit of the Lord. So God really is at work in the story. The primary actor in this story is not Jephthah, it's God. Prompted and empowered by the Spirit of God, Jephthah starts to mobilize his troops. What does he do? He crosses Gilead and Manasseh, passes through Mizpah of Gilead. This is his homeland, this is his clan. This is where he's got the best chance of, of rousing some support, some soldiers to fight with him. And then, having got them, he advances against the Ammonites. And it's right then, on the eve of the battle, King Richard III all over again, as he's rallying his troops, with the the adrenaline surging through his veins, right at that critical moment, Jephthah makes his, his tragic mistake, utters a few short words that transform his life. This is what he says. He makes a vow in verse 30 to the Lord. He stops and he says to God, a prayer, "'If you give the Ammonites into my hands,' Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, will be yours, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, some commentators have tried to be easy on Jephthah and have explained that there is the possibility that what Jephthah was talking about was, was an animal, maybe a, you know, a sheep or a goat, um, flossy, you know, the family's pet lamb or something like that. And, and there's, there's the possibility um, that that exactly is what he was thinking of or hoping for. Because in those days, houses often had rooms inside the houses where the animals were kept. So it's quite possible that it would have been an animal, a goat, skipping out of the, the door first to meet Jephthah on his return from battle. Um, but other commentators, those who have spent years studying the text, they have said that the original language is just too, too close to suggesting that Jephthah was referring to a human being. Whoever or whatever comes out to meet me, he's, he's thinking of a, of, a, of a person. Maybe a slave of the family, a servant, maybe an extended member of the family, you know, a relative. At the very least, he's gambling with the fact that it could have been a human being that would be first out the door. He's making a terrible mistake, and when you, you have to ask the question, you know, when you read a story like this, why does he do it? I mean, everything we've seen about Jephthah in, in, the, in the story up to this point would suggest that he's, he's good, he's wise, he's self-controlled, he's thoughtful. He doesn't do stupid things. So why does he do it here? Well, this is one of those frustrating stories where we're left to fill the blanks. You know, the writer doesn't join all the dots for us. But I don't think it's hard to work out. Because look at Jephthah. He might have a noble character in many respects. He might be gifted in many ways, but he obviously walks with with a limp emotionally. He's been hurt as a child. He's been profoundly damaged in his self-esteem, surely, from the way he was treated. He, 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 He probably nurses, and it would seem that he does, nurses a grievance against his brothers and his family. And I can imagine that when he marches into war, at the head of his clan facing his, the, the enemies that have been oppressing his people for 18 long years. He's thinking, this is it. This is my one golden opportunity to, to salvage my pride, to, to establish or cleanse my, my name, to prove to my family the kind of person I am, or, or at the very least to make them eat humble pie and realize what they had done to me. But this is his moment. This is his chance to make everything all right. And so he goes in with this almost insane commitment to win. You might have heard of Vince Lombardi. Anyone heard of Vince Lombardi, the, the American football coach? Yeah. He had the, this, this phrase, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. It's the only thing. It's, it, winning is just the only thing that counts. And you almost get a sense that as Jephthah rides into battle, that's what he's thinking. I would give anything to win this battle. Lord, do you hear me? I would give anything. Just let me win this battle. Well, little does he realize the cost that he will pay, the price that he'll pay. Look at verse 32. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites. And the Lord, the Lord gave them into his hands. So it is God who does act on behalf of his people, as he obviously would, feeling compassion for them, having responded to their their confession. And uh, Jephthah, empowered by God, devastates 20 towns, From Oroah to the vicinity of Manith, as far as abel Kiramim, thus Israel subdued Ammon, won the battle, turned their their oppressors back. And when Jethro returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter an only child. It doesn't take much to imagine how devoted Jephthah would have been to his little girl. When I read this, and it's good to use the imagination, I reckon, when reading a story like this, I imagine that he, he's got an only child. Maybe he, he and his wife weren't able to have children for quite some time. And this is it. This is his one child. One day he got the news, saw the scan. It's us, at last. And here's his little girl. Now it's his turn to carry her chubby legs and bottom on his shoulders and to, and to kiss that little, that little bottom and, and bottom, you know, as you do with little children. And, um, and, um, and, to, and to, you know, to play with her on the floor and to put her into bed at night to read her stories. And I can imagine there would have been many times when Jephthah told the story to his little girl of Miriam and Moses. And how Moses once won this this glorious victory on behalf of the people of Israel, the greatest victory that they could recall against the Egyptians, the Exodus. And who came out to meet Miriam at the end of that uh, to meet Moses at the end of that battle? But Miriam, with tambourines, and dancing. And I can imagine that Jethro's girl, his little girl, who's now it would seem probably a, a teenager, a lively young teenage girl, thinks when she hears this wonderful news that her her father, her father has won this battle for his people, she thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll go out and meet him with tambourines and dancing. I know the story. I'll surprise him. But she doesn't realize that this is not Miriam's story. This is her father's story. And her father had said something he shouldn't have said. Just a little phrase. But this is what happens. Verse 35, when Jephthah saw her, he tore his clothes, expression of deep grief, and he cried, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. As it happens, I reckon he should have broken this vow, don't you? It turns out that in, in Leviticus, um, one of the earlier books, uh, one of the, 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 the law books that the people of Israel had and carried with them and treasured and memorized, it said that, that Jephthah probably could have paid money in exchange for his daughter's life. Having made a crazy, hasty vow, the consequences of which were too great to bear, he could have paid money in, in lieu of her and still honored his vow. But Jephthah didn't know that for some reason. I think at the very least, he should have just broken the vow and borne whatever consequences you know, were his, surely. Don't you think? Isn't there such a thing as the lesser of two evils? And that would have been a lesser evil, surely. Break your vow, bear the consequences, but not kill your own daughter. Jethro didn't know that or didn't reflect on that. And so he does to his daughter what he said he would. Uh. And the irony is this that having wanted so desperately to establish or to cleanse his name, he ends up staining it for all time. And we're reading the story today. Having been so terribly mistreated by his own family as a child, he ends up treating his, his daughter in an even worse fashion. I reckon this is one of the most movingly tragic stories in all of the Bible. So what can we learn from a tragedy like this? This is breaking all the rules of of homiletics or preaching, sorry, to try and then unpack a story. Stories should speak for themselves. But three quick observations. First of all, this is a story about success, isn't it? Jeff is a tragic figure because more than anything else, he wanted success. And that one blinding moment of utter foolishness, he wanted success more than anything else. And he was prepared to pay whatever the price. And he did. How many people do you know? I mean, good people, wise, noble people, godly people, who today are wringing their hands with regret, saying to themselves, why did I do it? Why did I put my career before my marriage? Or my, I don't know, my ministry even before my children? Why did I do it? Why did I put success before people? I think that's the first message in this story. It's the lesson of Jephthah, surely, at one level. Because even good people can forget that lesson. In the heat of the moment, in the heat of the chase, we all can. Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, classic example. Have you heard his story? The man who founded World Vision, Bob Pierce, in the 1950s and 60s, way back when he was establishing the organization, getting it it off the ground, he, he was just consumed by that task. He became one of the ten most travelled men in the world. They calculated it. That's how many airports he earned back in the 50s and 60s. Was just on a plane, going to different places in the world all the time. But as a result, was away from home, where there was a little girl called Sharon, who desperately wanted to be with her daddy. She really lost her father to a work that demanded all of his time and energy. And this is what she wrote. This is what she wrote growing up. She said, I know mum loves me. I know that. But some things a woman just can't give. One thing being the comfort of a man, yes, a father even, when he puts his arms around you and says everything will be okay. She didn't feel those arms anywhere near enough. And towards the end of 1968, Sharon took her own life. Now that might not have been the only reason why, but what 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 a tragedy that Bob Pierce should win the battle like Jephthah And established this great organization that's helped thousands of children all around the world. And yet he lost his own. So, never make success an idol. I think that's what Jethro would say to us. It's a story about success, but it's also a story about character. Uh, Because in Jethro's case, I think it's his experience as a child, and the pain that he carried, the the brokenness that that he carried, That made him vulnerable to the kind of crazy vow that he he uttered. You know, it was the fact that he had been rejected by his brothers, disinherited by his family, all that kind of stuff. You get a sense that if it hadn't been for that, if it hadn't been for the the broken self-esteem, the grudge on his, the chip on his shoulder, the loose nail in his character, he might not have made this mistake. We need to watch the loose nails in our thinking in our character. Because we've all got them. I remember Paul Windsor, who used to be the principal at Carey Baptist College. He used to say to young pastoral students who were training for ministry and leadership and and uh, you know wanting to go out and make a mark on the world. He used to say to them, and I used to marvel at this. He said, "Watch your weaknesses. Sure, your visible strengths are important, but it's your invisible weaknesses so much more than your strengths that will shape the course of your life and ministry. Loose nails." have a habit of taking you down. So don't ignore them. We've all got loose nails. Um, I remember as a young kid, um, in in the space of about two or three years, a remarkable little episode in my life, but in in quick order, three of my best friends all decided that they no longer wanted to be my friend. And you might think, well, you're a little kid, that happens, get over it. But I, I realize now, subsequently, how much of a profound impact that had on me and my character. I mean, I vividly remember walking through The the school grounds as an intermediate school kid, all of this stuff having happened, thinking, and I don't know, I didn't draw the connection at the time, but I thought to myself, if I could just win the cross country, and if I could just win this and this and this and become head boy, head prefect, people will like me. They won't reject me. And I've struggled with a sense of kind of perfectionism and wanting to perform and, and earn people's favor all my life. It's just, it's there. It's, it's changing, but it's there. And it's nearly taken me down. And, and I guess my question for you would be what's your loose name? Because I think Jephthah would say the same thing. This is a story about success, it's also a story about character. And then finally, I think, most importantly of all, it's a story about God. It's a story about God. God's always the center of any story in Scripture. And, and I think the real reason why Jephthah made the mistake he did was because his vision of God was so distorted. I mean, think about it. He grows up in a foreign land surrounded by pagan people who thought, historically, this was their conviction, they believed the gods, little territorial gods, needed to be persuaded to help you. They were distant and remote and somewhat selfish, these gods, and so you had to bribe them. You had to pay for their affection or their, their help. And so one of the things that they did, the Ammonites included, was sometimes to sacrifice people in the fire, to to burn people, to kill people, in order to to show the gods how how desperately enthusiastic or committed and devoted they were. They thought they had to earn the gods' favor. And Jephthah, it would seem, just like us today, I think, has imbibed more of his culture than he realizes. And it seems as if he's come to regard God less as a gracious and close father and more as a distant and remote deity who needs to be persuaded to help you. His favor needs to be bought. And so he enters into this crazy transaction. I promise this, if you do that. And the tragedy, the real tragedy of the story is that Jephthah didn't need to do that. He already had God's favor. God could bear his people's misery no longer. He was on their side. He had resolved to rescue them. Jephthah was the means. He was the instrument. If only he had known. There's a book called The Whisper Test. And in it, there's a story about a lady called Mrs. Leonard. She was a school teacher, primary school teacher. And the description—it's a lovely description. It says that she was short, round, and she sparkled. Isn't that a great description? <laughs> she sparkled, and her, 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 her pupils, her students, just loved her. Loved, adored Mrs. Leonard. One of her students was a little girl um, with a cleft palate, and uh, this little girl, when she started school a year before, um, it became very obvious to her how her classmates saw her, regarded her. In, in their eyes, she was a little girl with a misshapen lip, uh, lopsided teeth, twisted nose, and garbled speech. That's how they viewed her. And she became convinced that no one would ever love her, not outside her family. That was the little girl's conviction. Until Mrs. Leonard ran her annual hearing test. When she would get each of the students, one by one, these little year two students, to stand against the wall with a hand cupped over one ear, and Mrs. Leonard, sitting at her desk, would ask them a question, would whisper something to them, and they would have to repeat it back just to see if they'd heard. And she would ask questions like, is that a new, is that a new top? And they would have to repeat it back, or the sky is blue, and they'd have to repeat it back. Well, when it came time for the little girl with the, the, uh, the misshapen lip, the cleft palate, to, to listen for those words, she stood at the, the wall, And this is what she heard Mrs. Leonard whisper. I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my little girl. Seven words that that God must have placed in Mrs. Leonard's mouth. Seven words that changed that little girl's life. Seven words that Jephthah so desperately needed to hear with his broken background, broken self-esteem. Seven words that we all need to hear. Seven words that God from the cross spoke to us. The story of Judges is the story of God coming to the rescue of his people time and time and time again. And this is just one of those moments. Time and time again, they let him down. Time and time again, he pulls through and rescues them. And for us, um, there might be moments in our lives where we're very conscious of our brokenness. But the message of the cross, and ultimately the message that uh, the, the judges is pointing towards, is that we have a judge, we have a ruler, who won't let us down. In fact, he even took our place, and didn't let us die, but died for us. The good news is that you are loved by God, and you don't have to do anything to deserve it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this strange and tragic but really quite deep and wonderful story of Jethro. Would you give us the grace to put people before success? Would you give us the grace, Lord, to, to, to be aware of and to work on those aspects of our character where your grace is needed? Help us to recognize them and help us to come to you and, like the Israelites, to acknowledge our need of you. And Thank you that you will come. You will rescue. Your grace is sufficient for our every need. And thank you that you, Jesus, are the faithful judge, the faithful, gracious ruler, that you laid your life down for us. And from the cross, from the communion table, from the baptismal pool, you whisper to us that we are loved by you and there's nothing we need to do to earn your favor. Amen.